Good morning. We have been preaching through the Proverbs. Each week we pick a topic from the Proverbs and preach through a sample of them to get God's wisdom about each topic. We talked about friendship and money and family and speech and work and the pursuit of happiness. You've probably heard a little bit of everything this summer, but today we're ending the series with a passage that is one of the most grating passages to our ears. It's the 31st chapter of the book of Proverbs. I asked some of the young professionals at this church what they thought about it. The women in the group were very familiar with it and did not have positive feelings. Um, I actually texted one of my friends who is with me in the Biblical Studies Department at Abilene Christian University, and she texted back one word, ugh, U-G-H, that's it, that's all I got back. Uh, for, those who, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with this passage, it may seem archaic or backward. It may seem like it's saying that all women should be wives and mothers and anybody who isn't isn't a true woman. It may seem like it's an impossible standard. But for me, this passage has taken on new layers of meaning, new layers that I haven't ever seen before. And I'm so thankful to scholars who, who have made these connections for me. They've, they've connected this book to the rest of the Bible. And this is so important with the book of Proverbs because it can seem so disconnected. It's just a list of all these observations or rules, and it, it's not really clear how it fits in the grand story of Scripture, but we need to see how this chapter really is caught up in a much greater story. So I want to start at the beginning in Genesis, and by the end of this sermon, I hope we see the whole story of Scripture. Um, so let's, let's turn there together. We're actually going to start on page one of our Bibles. We have black Bibles in the pew in front of you, um, and we'll read these verses together. Uh, so page one, Genesis chapter one, and we're going to read in verses, 20, verses 26 through 28. The passage says this, Genesis 1 Starting in verse 26, God says, let us, this is royal language, let us make mankind, humankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, so that they may rule over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. It says it again, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In verse 28, it says, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when God makes humanity, he makes them man and woman in the image of God. They're called to be fruitful, to increase in number, and they're called to rule. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Some translations, maybe ones you're familiar with, say have dominion or reign, but that idea of us ruling over the earth seems strange. 
right? Only a few people. Only kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers get to rule over the rest. Does all humanity rule? According to the biblical vision, this is what God wants from the beginning. He is a king who shares his kingdom. And Genesis 2 shows us what that looks like in the Garden of Eden. So if you turn one page, we're going to look at verse 8. God says, and verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and he put the man he had formed there. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to skip down all the way to verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free, free, totally free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. That word helper is actually Hebrew for azer, and an azer is a word used to describe God, Okay. I will make a, a corresponding companion for you, someone you need. Verse 19 says, the Lord, had, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, but he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. No azer was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I just think that these two passages in Genesis 1 and 2 are so incredible. God gives a mission to us, to humans, to men and women, to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to share in his kingdom. And the way that works out is by working in a garden, to make the world itself Fruitful And God is not stingy one bit. He says, you are free to eat of all of these trees. I'm just going to make one rule. You must avoid one. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, knowledge of good and evil in Scripture is not inherently a bad thing. Knowledge of good and evil is wisdom, which is really, really good. And we need wisdom, but we need wisdom from God on His timing and in his way. So the question of Genesis after the first two chapters when everything seems to be going so well is will Adam and Eve receive wisdom from God or somewhere else? And the stakes are really high, right? God says the day you eat of that tree, the day you seek wisdom from another source rather than me, you will die. 
When you do what's right in your own eyes, you'll die. But if you receive wisdom from me, you, you can eat from the tree of life and live forever. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve go down that second path. And it's just so, it's so interesting to me that the serpent is called crafty, which is just another word for wise. But he uses his wisdom to deceive Adam and Eve. He says, you won't die if you eat from that tree. Your eyes will be opened. You'll gain a new kind of wisdom. So what does Eve do? It says she sees that the fruit is good and pleasing and desirable to the eye, and she takes it. This is what sin is from the beginning. You see something that's desirable to you, and in your wisdom, you take it. And that is the temptation for all of us. Will we receive wisdom from God or from another source? And when, when Adam and Eve do this, every blessing in Genesis 1 and 2 is, is lost, right? At first, they were naked and unashamed, but what do they do? They see that they're naked, and what do they do? Cover themselves. God says, I call you to rule, to have dominion, but after they sin, God says, you know what's going to happen between men and women? He says, he shall rule over you. That was not my intention in the beginning. My intention was for you to rule together, but now you're at odds with each other. He says, I, I want to give you this, this garden to till and work, Adam. This is for you, something I made for you. I'm not stingy at all. There's all these trees for you to work with. But now, outside of the garden, the, to the, the toil you're going to put into work is going to be brutal. Every blessing from Genesis 1 and 2 is undone. Everything that God wanted to give them is undone. The wise Adam and Eve become the foolish Adam and Eve. We were so hopeful for them. We wanted this garden of Eden to work out, but it doesn't. And so we're left with this question, and I think the Old Testament wants all of us to ask it, is there going to be a new Adam or a new Eve? And we see so many candidates, right? Abraham and Sarah are told that they're going to be fruitful. Abraham, despite his old age, is told that he's going to have many descendants. But instead of listening to God and coming together as husband and wife, they make a plan that's wise in their own eyes. Sarah sees and takes Hagar. A little bit like Eve, seeing and taking the fruits in the garden and giving it to her husband. Abraham and Sarah were supposed to be the new Adam and Eve, but they're not. Abraham says nothing about this plan, and he becomes a fool. They are not the wise Adam and Eve we hoped for. And then we see King David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's ruling over Israel. When he conquers the promised land, we're told that he's subduing it, just like God had called Adam and Eve to do in the garden. Maybe David, maybe David is going to be the new Adam. But then like Eve, seeing the fruit, he looks up from his palace and sees Bathsheba. She is not being seductive. She is washing herself. 
And from his position of power, he looks and sees that she is desirable to his eye, just like Eve in the garden, and he takes her. Just like Adam, David tries to hide his shame and sin from God. David, King David, a man after God's own heart, is still not the Adam we hoped for. Well, maybe David's son Solomon, maybe he's a candidate for the new Adam. Right? We're we're told that in 1 Kings 4, during Solomon's rule, everyone lived under their own vine and under their own fig tree. It's a lot like saying Solomon is building a new Eden, a new garden for everyone to enjoy. Maybe, just maybe, Solomon will break the cycle and he will not be like his father. He will not be like Abraham and he will not be like Adam. God appears to this Solomon, this king, and he says, I'll give you anything, anything you ask for. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. The phrase he uses, I want to distinguish between right and wrong. It is the same phrase that describes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's asking for wisdom, but he's not seeking it in another source. He's seeking it from God. He wants to be a wise Adam. He wants to rule just like God called Adam and Eve to rule. And maybe we really hope for a second Solomon will be the new Adam. But a few chapters later, we find out that he's not. He takes takes many wives for himself, hundreds to be precise. He starts ruling unjustly over his people. He conscribes tens of thousands of men to do slave labor for him, which sounds a lot more like Pharaoh than a good king. As soon as we get excited about Solomon, he's asking for wisdom from God. Maybe he's the new Adam that we didn't get in the beginning, that we didn't get with Abraham, that we didn't get with David. Maybe, just maybe, he will be. But he isn't. And so many biblical characters of the Old Testament aren't the wise people we hoped they would be. Right? Esau, do you remember, he despises his birthright for what? A little bowl of soup. Just like Adam and Eve despised their birthright for a piece of fruit. Jacob deceives his father Isaac just like Adam and Eve tried to deceive God. Joseph's brothers betray him just like Cain betrayed Abel. Every single time humanity gets a chance to seek after God's wisdom, to be wise, and to be wise in his eyes, they blow it. And all of those stories matter so much. Because who writes the book of Proverbs? Solomon. Solomon, at the very beginning, we find out that he is the one who collected all of this wisdom. And in the very first chapters, we hear this fatherly figure speak to his son. And he says this, he says, listen to your father's instruction. Doesn't that make a lot more sense now? That a King Solomon figure would want his son, who is going to be king, to be wise. This makes sense of the fact that Solomon says, my son, you need to seek after wisdom. And he actually personifies wisdom as a woman. He says she is far greater 
than anything else you could ask for. He says, this is incredible. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is a tree of life. Where have we heard about trees of life? All the way back in Genesis. This is what our whole story is about. We need wisdom to live. But we need that wisdom from God. I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament is different than the way Christians order it. We have Job... uh, Let me get this right. I'm going to look back at my notes. The preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. We have Psalms... Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. But the Jewish order of the Bible is Job, Proverbs, and then Ruth. So right after you read Proverbs 31, if you're a Jew, the next book you read is Ruth. And the woman of valor described in Proverbs 31, the only other time that phrase is used is used to describe Ruth. So you don't just see this, exa- this, this chapter of Proverbs 31 and, and see no example of it. You see it embodied in Ruth. The search for an, a new Adam and a new Eve continues over and over and over. We need, we need wise men and women. That is what God has always wanted from the beginning. And what's so amazing to me about the last chapter of Proverbs is that it's by a woman. I don't know if you've noticed this, but verse 31 says, These are the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. Wouldn't it make sense that a king's mother would say, You need to find a wise wife, because that's our whole story. That's the entire story of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Proverbs. In order for for us to fulfill our calling from God to share in His rule, we need wise men and women. But we keep running into this issue. None of them are what we're looking for. They always fail in some respects. They always seek wisdom. They always have something wise in their own eyes. They always have a plan that they think is smarter than God's plan. They always use wisdom in some way for their own purposes. And we're constantly left with, who's going to be the new Adam? None of us are the wise Adam and Eve that Genesis hopes for. There's only one candidate, one person that Christians believe is just the right fit. His forefathers are Adam and Abraham and David and Solomon. His foremothers are Eve and Sarah and Bathsheba and Ruth. He came saying that the kingdom of God is near, just like Genesis 1 is all about a kingdom. One of his followers called him the wisdom of God. Paul also called him the image of God, just like the image that Adam and Eve were made in. And he also calls himself a groom who is looking for a bride. One of the most common interpretations of this passage, Proverbs 31, is not some impossible standard 
for women to constantly see themselves as lesser than. Proverbs 31 is about the church and Christ seeking his bride. He is the Adam we're looking for. He is the king who rules over everything. He is the one who's been fruitful and multiply. He has uh, a few billion followers on planet Earth. He is the new Solomon who is wise. He is the new David who does not struggle with the same struggles that David did. This chapter, Proverbs 31, is about all of us. We're the bride of Christ. We say that all the time, and it may sound so strange, but it's a theme throughout Scripture. God always wanted there to be an Adam and Eve to rule with him. So what God did is became the new Adam and the new Abraham and the new Solomon and the new David. I actually got to go to Israel and experience a Sabbath meal with a Jewish family. And at one point in that uh, whole experience, we got to see this Jewish father bless his sons individually. Each one, he would bend down and he would bless them. And my brothers were with me at the time. They're both married and have four kids and they were weeping. It was, it was fun to watch as an uncle. Um, and I, I, it was such a beautiful moment between this, this father and his sons. And then they did something that I had never seen before. They all blessed their mother with Proverbs 31. They all spoke the whole chapter as a blessing over her. They were not saying, you don't live up to this. They blessed her exactly as she was. And I think that for, for if, when we read this chapter and we know that we're the bride of Christ, when we know that that's what we've been called to, we can see this as a blessing. It's not meant to make us feel bad about our shortcomings. It's a call on all of us to be Christ's bride. What if the entire story of Scripture is all about this? We sought wisdom from other sources, and we have failed to find it. So God's wisdom came to us. In Christ, we have the arrival of wisdom. That's what Proverbs 31 and the whole book of Proverbs and the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are stunned by the incredible story that Scripture tells that you designed us, you wanted us to rule with you, and we needed wisdom from you to do that, but we chose our own way. We chose wisdom in our own eyes. And there were so many people that we've looked up to to be the new Adam or the new Eve, and no one's lived up to it. 
the only one who has is Christ. He is your wisdom come to us. He is the last Adam. He is the new King Solomon. He is exactly who we needed him to be. And he's not just that, but he is somehow, in some mysterious way, a groom looking for a bride. He calls out to us. We pray that we would respond. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name.